following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon passage comes from 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. And we, were, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What's up? How y'all doing? Amen. All right. Deep waters this morning. Get ready. Amen. Get your paddle, get your boat. Uh, we are beginning a series, this uh, a summer series in which we are answering the questions um, that have been submitted by this church, by the guests and the members of this church, uh, some of the more pressing questions on your heart regarding the Christian life. And we are starting that series today. We're calling it, calling it Class in Session because each week we're going to take a question um, um, and, and we're going to try to answer it, all right? We're going to try to answer it and we hope that it's going to be helpful and beneficial for you this summer. And we would encourage you you also to share with your uh, share with your friends and tell them, hey, come on, man, because they're going to be answering uh, all these crazy questions that you might have about the Christian life. So come on and join us. And so today, I figured it would be good to start with why should I trust the Bible? That was a that was a question that was and, and understand that it wasn't that exact question that came in, but it was the it was the 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 shape of that question. It kind of reflected that question, and we had several people that submitted questions that all that basically pointed us to the idea of why should I trust the Bible? And so we want to talk a little bit about that. And I think a great place to, to talk about that is in 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter in, chap, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is giving us concrete evidence as to why we should trust the Bible. Concrete evidence. And I think if you look at this text, there's a lot of things that you can take from it, a lot of things that you can capture from it. But the one thing that you need to capture from it above all things is that the word of God is sure and the word of God is true and the word of God can and should and must be trusted. Must be trusted. I think Peter gives us three, at least three reasons, multiple reasons as to why we can and, tr and should trust the word of God. One is because it's historically sound because it's historically sound. The second reason is because it is culturally transcendent. That means that it doesn't simply abide in culture. It hovers above culture. It, it, go, it goes above and beyond culture. And that's going to be important. We'll talk about it in a second. And then lastly, it is divinely composed. In other words, the handprint and the fingerprint of God is on it. And we'll talk about all three of those things. But let's start with the idea of historically sound. The Bible is historically sound. Peter, Peter tells us in verse 16, for we do not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known or we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We saw with our eyes, we heard with our ears. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. Peter here is showing that we can trust the Bible because it is not the product of hearsay, but of actual historical evidence. Real people who were there to see the real works of Jesus with their own eyes and hear the voice of God, the Father, saying that he is pleased with his son with their very own ears. One of, you, one of the unique facts about the scriptures is that it is a book of faith that is written during the time of its most significant moments. It's not written 400 years later talking about those moments. It's written in the midst of the moments. Peter writes his epistles literally just 40, 40, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus had left. Paul writes his epistles 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus had left. John writes his epistles 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus had left. Now, that might not seem like much to you, but when you talk about ancient books, that is significant that they are that close to the actual events transpiring. They are eyewitnesses. They saw this. They heard this. The New Testament is in a book written by authors of three, four generations removed. It is written by authors who were present and risked everything to tell the story. Peter is highlighting that point as he describes the fact that the gospel of Jesus wasn't some legend, some myth that he received through generations. No, he witnessed it. He saw it. He heard it. Luke, the author of the uh, third gospel, says the same thing in the very beginning of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have cert that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke says, there have been others that have written about these, these events, these works, these accounts. I think it's fitting for me to write my own account, having investigated this thoroughly, having spoken to eyewitnesses, having spoken to his disciples. Here is my account based on all the evidence that I have gathered. And we know that Luke is a doctor, and in this particular function, though, or in this particular moment, he's using all of his investigative, inquisitive doctoral skills to serve as an investigative journalist using eyewitnesses. Not people that heard about it, not people that my grandmama told me about it, my great-grandmama told her about it. No, people that were there. In fact, some literary experts highlight the fact that the beginning of Luke reads like many of the other histor historic works or historian works in that day. In other words, Luke doesn't read like narrative, like, like fictional narrative of that time. Luke reads like a history book of that time. Do you understand? 
Luke highlights real officials. Luke highlights real authorities that are actually in, in the, the, the timeline in which he is writing. Luke highlights real places. Luke highlights real events that transpired and that are historically documented in his book. Luke isn't a creative writer. Luke is a documentarian. Do you understand? In C.S. Lewis's essay entitled Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, he said this about, about the Gospels. He says, I have been reading poems and romances and vision literature and legends and myths all my life. C.S. Lewis was a, was a literary expert, all right? He says, I've been reading that kind of stuff all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, talking about the Gospels. With the Gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is historical reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novel and realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. In other words, C.S. Lewis is saying, listen, if you're saying that Luke is writing like an investigative journalist as fiction, you're, what you're saying is that Luke is taking on a literary style that was unknown in his day, that had never been done before. And basically, he's saying, and the point he's saying is that you don't know literature of ancient times if that's the position that you're taking. No, he's not writing like an investigative journalist because he's, draw, he's drawing fiction or drafting fiction. He's writing like an investigative journalist because he is an investigative journalist. Does that make sense? Similar to Luke's point of gathering details, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he talks about the resurrection. He talks about the idea that 500 people, many of whom still live today, witnessed this epic moment in human history. In other words, Paul is saying, go ask them. They're around. Go talk to them. They're around. People were alive that could denounce it. People were alive that could say those guys are crazy. Even non, but even non-Christian historians and non-Christian writers acknowledge that Jesus had a prominent role in first century. For example, the second century writer Lucian says of Jesus, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on their account or on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, Jesus, that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted, and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage, Jesus, and live after his laws, end quote. Second century. So you got some guys on the street that'll tell you, well, Jesus wasn't even around until the Council of Nicaea when they kind of made all this stuff up. Council of Nicaea was in fourth century, 325 AD. This guy's talking about Jesus, second century. How about Josephus, another historian? Actually, this is a Jewish historian, and he's not a believer, but he writes about Jesus in the first century, and he says this, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. That's first century Jewish historian. 
The scriptures are unique in the sense that not only are they captured extremely close to the events of Christ, but they're captured by the people who were with Christ. And this isn't just a random book that shows up centuries later, as I mentioned earlier. As a matter of fact, the time between the original composition, the original manuscripts, and the earliest copies of those manuscripts is only a 60-year window. In other words, we can go all the way back. We got copies of Scripture that date all the way back to just just outside of the first century. That's amazing when you consider that there's been 2,000 years between the Scripture's writing and us. There's very few ancient works that can make that kind of claim. Very few. Not many. Probably can count them on two hands. One theologian Rather, I'm sorry, before I even jump to that, I want to say this. Oh, out of the 5,700 manuscripts that we have, almost 800 of them have been copied before AD 1000. Those manuscripts produce 99% of the text that we have today reliably. In other words, for the guy that says, King James changed all that stuff in the 15th, 16th century. No, he didn't. We got this original text that dates back literally before AD 1000. This text that you see that's been translated into English, they're not getting it from random texts that show up later 17th, 18th century. They're getting it from texts that go back to the earliest of days. Are you tracking with that? One theologian wrote an article six years ago highlighting a bunch of reasons that, that tell us the New Testament is historically reliable. And three of those reasons I'll highlight. He says that the authors of the Gospels and the Acts were in an excellent position to report reliable information. Matthew and John were among the 12 disciples Jesus himself chose. Mark was a close companion of Peter. Luke was a close companion as well and traveled extensively with Paul. Second reason, these five books were almost certainly written in the first century within 60 to 70 years of Jesus' death. Thirdly, the testimony of non-Christian writers supports the details of the Gospels and the Acts. About a dozen ancient Jewish, Greek, and Roman writers mention Jesus. Taken together, their writings attest to the basic contours of Jesus' life. In other words, contrary to what you may hear from from pop culture, Jesus was not an idea cooked up centuries later um, after his death. No, Jesus was rooted in history years before or, or just a short amount of time before, a short amount of time after, rather, his death and re- uh, burial and resurrection and ascension. Are you tracking so far? So Peter says that we were eyewitnesses. In other words, what we see was historical fact. But also, not only is the Bible to be trusted because it's historical, the Bible is also to be trusted because it is culturally transcendent. Peter says in verse 20, look there, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So culture is, a, is man established. But, but these words that are in Scripture, these sentences, these paragraphs, these chapters and and, and books, they rise above man's influence and interpretation because they come from God, according to Peter. Peter says this isn't some guy sitting around cooking uh, cooking up ideas just based on his own opinions. 
He says that the prophets that wrote and the apostles that followed them, Peter being one of them, that they didn't just write their thoughts. They were literally carried by the Spirit as they composed the Word. In other words, the Spirit was not seeking to let something be written that, that, that rests in the culture or the age of, that, of, their, of their time, but rather he was seeking to rise above it and write something transcendent, write something timeless, write something that goes beyond a generation and extends to generation to generation and generation, write something that goes beyond a culture and can reach any culture. That's what the Spirit was doing. You can trust the Scriptures because they don't come from man, they come from God. As the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles were composing and writing, they were being carried by the Spirit. It is a major reason why it's timeless, because they were being carried by the Spirit. It's a major reason why it doesn't seem to fade away. This book that was written 2,000 years ago is still here, still the most read, still the most published. It's because it was written by God. So what about those cultural problems that we run into when we look into the Bible or we look at the Bible, like how God views sexuality, for example, or how God views slavery, or how God views a lot of things. There's a, there's a lot of things that rub up against us culturally that we need to try to figure out, and we will, and, 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 and we will in this text. The first reason that we got to, or, or the first way that we can address the cultural problems that we run into when we look at the Scripture is to first ask ourselves, are we actually looking at the Scripture the way God is looking at the Scripture. In other words, the particular cultural problem that we have, is it actually God's position? Or do we just think that it's God's position? For example, take slavery. Many folks look at the Bible and they say, how can you really accept the Bible when it argues for such a heinous institution? And of course, what they do is they cite the Apostle Paul in his prison epistles, his prison letters, the letters that he wrote from prison, Colossians and Ephesians, Colossians 3, I believe, Ephesians 5, maybe, possibly 6. But in those texts, he says, slaves, obey your masters. And they say, how in the world can you support a book that would tell someone to, to sit back quietly and obey in light, of the, in light of the harsh treatment they were receiving in that day? We even hear Paul say the same thing in Corinthians, making a similar declaration that, that he says, basically, if you're a slave, then stay a slave. Don't seek to be free. If, you're, if you have opportunity, then go ahead and pursue it. Nevertheless, it, it's these texts, right? It's these texts that were used in the 17th and the 18th century, right? It was these texts that were used. Slaves obey your masters to, to keep... African slaves docile and obedient and to, and to keep, and to keep their, their ideals of rebellion far from, from reach. But do we understand God's position when we read this text? I don't think so. Here's a couple of things to think about. First, when Paul talks about slavery, it was a different time. It was a different type of slavery. Chattel slavery of the 16th, 17th, or 17th, 18th, 19th century in America and indentured servitude of the Roman era are two different things. And even the Jewish era are two different things. One, the Jewish era, it was not, or, or the Jewish era, Roman era, was not race-based at all. It was actually class. In other words, when people became too poor to afford their debts, they 
sold themselves into slavery to pay off that debt. And when they paid off that debt, they were free. Not only that, but if you were a Hebrew, uh, Hebrew and you, if, it, if the slavery was from Jewish to Jewish, then the seventh year, every seventh year was the year of Jubilee when all debt was forgiven, and you were free regardless if you had paid off the debt. You tracking with that? It was not generational. In other words, in other words, it didn't move and transcend from child to child to grandchild to great-grandchild. Two different types of slavery that we're talking about. Man-stealing was outlawed by God in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. And so it wasn't the idea where you could go to a continent, take people, and then bring them back and make them your slaves. That was outlawed, according to God, and punishable by death. Two different types. You tracking? Even when you look at the book of Philemon, which we've studied this year together in missional community, you look at the book of Philemon, the book of Philemon, the, the letter that Paul writes to one of the Christians by the name of Philemon is about a slave that he has by the name of Onesimus. Philemon owns a slave, Onesimus. And as he, the slave runs away and Paul says, all right, we're going to send him back because the slave runs away and he makes it to Paul. While he makes it to Paul, it looks like the gospel reaches him and he gets saved. Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. But when I send him back to you, I expect that he's not going to simply just be a slave now. He's going to be a brother. I expect you to treat him that way. I expect for you to look at him not as simply your slave, but to look as a brother that has been warned. Totally different ideas and concepts as it relates to slavery for Paul, isn't it? Does that make sense? This, this continent slavery withheld the gospel at times because of the fear that if a, a baptized slave would be entered into the family of God and thus would have to be treated differently. And so they withheld the gospel being shared with those slaves. That's a different type of slavery. And so God is not sanctioning that type of slavery when you look at the scriptures and you hear him say, slaves, obey your masters. It's a different type. It's a different idea. So maybe sometimes we rub up against God's ideas because they're not God's ideas, right? But maybe sometimes we rub up against God's ideas because there is a, a, a confusion between cultural creation and creator's mandates. In other words, there are some things that are just products of culture, but there are some things that rest in the mandate of creation, okay? There are some things that are just a part of creation. Cultural mandate, for example, I'll give you one, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there is a text beginning around verse 4 where, where there is a text referencing women wearing head coverings, have you ever heard that? Anybody, anybody in the room ever heard that? The idea was that when women in Corinth were to worship, they were to worship with their heads covered. And men were not to worship with their heads covered. Matter of fact, it says in verse 3 of chapter 11, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair off, or cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, 
since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And you hear that and you say, okay, that, that's simple. When we come to church, that means we're all supposed to wear hats if we're women. And if we're not, if we're men, then we're not supposed to wear hats. And also, um, we're not supposed to get our hair cut short. All of that, that's simple. Case closed. Let's go home. But this mandate was culturally bound because of what head coverings declared about women in that culture. See, the key in all of that text is verse 7 when Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So in other words, Paul is saying that the head covering is representing the distinctions that have been established by God. In that culture, to not be covered to not be covered signified that you were trying to take the role and the function of man. And to cover signified that you were trying to take the role and the function of woman. And so the distinctions is what Paul was concerned with, not the actual cultural artifact of a hat. Does that make sense? In our culture, there is no such distinction as hats mean uh, women, no hats mean men. Does that make sense? And so there's no need when we come into the house of God to show that distinction because that's not what distinguishes us. What Paul is concerned with is making sure that we maintain our unique distinction between man and woman. So that is a creation of culture. And there are other creations like it throughout the scriptures. Creations of culture. But then... Beyond that creation of culture, there is a cultural mandate. In other words, there are some things that, yes, do rub up against us wrong in the scriptures. But they aren't simply cultural biases. They are creator's law. And one of those things is sexuality. Sexuality is not cultural in scripture. Despite what we may hear and what we may think, sexuality is actually is creator law. It's creator mandate. So unlike the head coverings, we can't just discard it. We can't just get rid of it. There are things in the Bible that your assumptions are not wrong about when you say, man, the Bible is a little outdated there. Your assumptions are not wrong about some of those things. There are things in the Bible that are not a product of culture. They're a product of creation. And they don't jive with the culture. So the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with those things? For example, as I mentioned, God's ideal, God's position on sexuality is anti-American culture. I did not say anti-world culture. And that's important. Because in America, God's ideal about sexuality may be one thing. But if you go to Africa... They don't believe what we believe as it relates to sexuality. So it's not a universal culture that we're even arguing against. What we're arguing against is a unique Americanized or a unique Westernized culture. And we're saying that God, get in line with our Western culture is what we're doing. In Romans 1, we find that Jesus establishes sexuality as a creator law, a creator mandate. He says in verse 24, Romans 1, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations. Listen, natural, natural for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Natural is the key. What does that mean? Natural as who defines it? Natural as God defines it. It's embedded in creator law. It's not cultural. It's creator mandate. Are you, are you tracking with that? Jesus refers to creation when he is establishing marital and sexual ethics in Matthew 19. As he talks about divorce, he says this. He says, the Pharisees came up to him rather and, t- and tested him by asking, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, in this particular culture, your wife could just cook something wrong. <laughs> Seriously. And you, and you can say, you know what? Man, you and these tacos ain't jiving, man. I'm out of here. Right? The third time you burn my taco meat. I'm out of here, you know? So, so, but, so Jesus is actually, and so notice what's happening is that when you, people would say that the scriptures, that the Bible is anti-woman. But that's to assume that you know God's position just because you read some things, but you don't really understand God's position. If you look throughout scripture, what you see is that every time woman is defiled or demeaned or demoralized, God's judgment is on those people. And so even in the ideal of divorce, where divorce was totally within man's control, woman had no rights as it relates to divorce. Man had all the rights. He could say, hey, I don't like your cooking. I'm out of here. Now Jesus is speaking to those very men and saying to them, no, you can't. You divorce her for any reason, then you're committing adultery with the next person that you, uh, that, you, that you go to because of your frivolous, frivolous uh, reasons for divorcing her and leaving her. Are you tracking? So he's, what is he doing? He's bringing the sisters up, right? He's bringing the sisters up. That's anti-culture of the day. So he, he, he talks about this marriage and this, this sexual ethic, and he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. Notice that he is embedding the sexual ethic into creation. Male, female, God created them. They shall leave parent. They shall cleave to one another. Male and female become one. And what God has joined, male and female becoming one. You see, all of that is resting in creative, in in the creator mandate, not in a cultural mandate. Paul further unpacks this ideal of sexual identities in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says that, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he begins to list out all the unrighteous. says those that practice sexual immorality, those that practice idolatry, those that practice um, adultery, um, those that practice homosexuality, those that are thieves, those that are greedy, those that are drunkards, those that are uh, revelers or swindlers will, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
says fornication. Listen, fornicators, adulterers, those who actively and habitually live out their passions towards the same gender are standing against God's created design, not just simply a cultural opinion. But here's the key. God corrects the culture in this regard. Your conduct doesn't have to be your identity. He says, right after he lays all of that out, he says this, verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, he's saying, fornicator, that is not your identity. No matter how strong the urge is for you to sleep with someone who is not your wife or not your husband, that is not you. The world says what? That that is you. That's why you feel that way. That's just who you are. You can't resist those urges. That's just who you are. Jesus says, no, that's not who you are. Adulterer, that is not who you are. You do not have to forsake the covenant that you've established with your spouse in order to go sleep with someone outside of that covenant. That is not who you are. You were that, but you are not that in Jesus. Your identity is in him now, not in your behavior. Brothers, sisters, struggling with same-sex attraction. That is not who you are. Yes, it can be real. Yes, it can be um, 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 enticing and the temptation can be strong and the world can be telling you it is like that just because that's who you are. But Jesus says that is not who you are. Your behavior does not define you. Your God does. And so he flips culture on its head because culture wants to tell you that your behavior is what defines you. And Jesus says, no, behavior isn't what defines you. I am. You're not what you do. You're who you worship. Tim Keller uses this example um, where he talks about this Anglo-Saxon warrior and this young man struggling with same-sex marriage in our century. So an Anglo-Saxon warrior in the Anglo-Saxon history, and then a young man struggling with homosexuality in our period. And he says, so think about these two men, right? One of these guys is being pushed and prodded and urged to be a killing machine, right? Be aggressive. Be, be, be aggressive, be vicious, be relentless, be merciless, because, he, because that's what the culture is, is encouraging him, and, and they need that out of him, right? So they're telling him, yes, all of, those, all of that rage in you, that is good, and that can be used, and that can be healthy. That violence, that, those violent tendencies, that can, that can be used, that's good, that's healthy. So in his culture, those things are good, right? Meanwhile, the ideal of homosexuality might be totally off the grid for that guy. That culture may shame him because of that. Well, fast forward. The young man struggling with homosexuality in our day, he may be told, listen, that's okay. That's good. That's who you are. That's healthy. Take pride in that. But the violent tendencies, they'll say, that's not normal. You tracking? You need to get rid of that. You need to suppress that. You need to control that. You need to, you need to fight those urges that you have. You notice? What's the difference? what's socially acceptable and what's socially not acceptable. Are you tracking with that? So what do you do in culture when culture sways you from one direction to the next? How do you adjust? How do you, how do you, 
How do you make sense of it all? They both feel right. They both feel true in their particular context and in their particular day. So what do we do? We turn to the eternal God who transcends culture. And we find the truth about ourselves in him. And when we find the truth about ourselves in him, it is him that says, no, even though they might tell you that robbing might be okay in this culture because you got you to gotta, you gotta rob to stay alive, right? That's not your identity. Find your identity in me and in my law. They may tell you that fornicating might be okay because, hey, it's just you being a man. That's not your identity. Find your identity in me and my law and so forth and so on. All of the different things that the culture will try to dictate and, and, and predicate or push on you, rather. All those different things God is saying, stop looking to the culture for your direction and your identity. Look to me. I transcend it all. We allow the word to be judge over us and not us become the judge over the word. Whenever we place God's word under our judgment, it will always need to be changed. Whenever we place God's word under our judgment, it will always need to be adjusted and modified and tweaked. Well, we got to throw that part out. We got to throw this part out. Oh, wait a second. I didn't know, I didn't know they said that. We got to put that part out too. But whenever we place our judgment under God's word, we are the ones that are being changed. We are the ones that are being transformed. We are the ones that are being adjusted and modified and poked and prodded. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be if it's God's word? That's exactly the way it's supposed to be. The word of God isn't meant to keep you comfortable where you are and just throw things out as you feel like throwing them out because they don't fit your urges. That's what advice columns are for. That's what Dear Abby is for. That's not what the scriptures are for. The scriptures are for you to come under submission to. Rosaria Butterfield brings this point home in, in one of her books when she writes this. If God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible has the right to interrogate my life and my culture, not the other way around. The Bible carries the right to interrogate your life. The Bible carries the right to tell you to flee that relationship. The Bible carries the right to tell you to stop lashing out with your tongue. The Bible carries the right, and the Spirit of God carries the power to aid you in doing it. And the Son of God carries the redemption to catch you when you fall. Are you tracking with that? The Bible is historically sound, culturally transcendent, but the Bible is also divinely composed. In 2 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 19, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully committed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The Bible, the prophetic word, should be seen as lamp shining in dark places. It should be seen as providing illumination to the darkness in our lives. The Bible is 
declared in Hebrews chapter 4 as a sword, sharper rather than a sword. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's the Bible that it drills into our hearts. It causes us, it, it does work in there. It shows us, it shines truth in the midst of the lies that the culture has taught us, right? It shines truth in there. It teaches us how to be men. It teaches us how to be women. It reshapes our identities. That's what the scripture does. And why does it do that? Well, because it is divinely composed. The, Bible, the scripture says that, 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 that all scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. And it's for that reason that when you read it, something happens to you. When you take it seriously, it begins to mess with you. You can't read it and not be dealt with. You have to put it down, don't you? If you read too much of it, it will do work in your soul because it is God-breathed. It is God-inspired. And Jesus, after his resurrection, he was walking on a road. He ran into two individuals. And those two individuals, they began to have a conversation about all the things that had transpired that day. And Jesus walked up onto those two individuals and he said, what, what is the conversation that you guys are having with each other? And verse 18 picks up when they says, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, they don't even know who he is at this point. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb. And found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen, verse 27 is the key. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. After spending time with Jesus on this road and having Jesus unpack the scriptures to these men, this is the response that they had in the latter part of that chapter. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Why does the scripture have that kind of impact on you? Why does your heart burn when it's being rightly divided, when you're reading it and focusing in and giving it its due attention? Why does your heart burn it's because the word of God is unveiling the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said along the road, he opened up, he began with Moses, and he began to describe to them himself. And he showed them 
When they saw the temple, they saw Jesus. Everything about the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And as the person and work of Jesus began to be unpacked, and they began to see him as the prophet, as the priest, as the king, their hearts burned. The reason why the word of God should be trusted as the Bible or, or, the, or the reason why the word or the Bible should be trusted as the word of God is not simply because it's historical, historically sound and culturally transcendent. It's because it is unpacking the God of the universe to you. It is because it is showing you the work and the person of Jesus Christ. It is because that you have an opportunity to see the price that was paid for you at Calvary's cross. It's because you get an opportunity to see just how desperately wicked and sinful you are without him. It's because you have the opportunity to see that not only did he die for you, but he resurrected for you. And that in that resurrection power, you have life and you have power. It's because you get an opportunity to see that he ascended and now constantly and consistently, he is interceding for you. As you fall, as you fail, when you stumble in the midst of your fight, he is interceding for you. It's because the Bible is showing you the person and work of Jesus Christ that you should trust it as the word of God. I can't, I can't tell you enough how much you need this book. I can't tell you enough how much you need this book. Put your nose in it daily. And when you doze off to sleep, wake back up and put your nose in it again. Know that it is a war that you are fighting. Do you know, have you ever noticed that the Bible is the book that puts you to sleep the fastest? Why is that? Because you're, it's a war that you're fighting. Satan doesn't want you in this book. Because he knows that in this book, it's life. In this book, is relief. In this book, is rescue. So cling to it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you. We ask, Lord God, that you would give us the strength. The strength, Lord God. Because it requires strength. Spirit-empowered strength to look to this, to this beautiful and precious book that you've given us, to read it, to study it, to allow by your spirit, to allow it to do the work in our hearts that needs to be done, and to allow ourselves to be sub subjected to its dealing, subjected to its authority, and not the other way around. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.